You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Pastor here at Midtown Two Notch, if I have not had the opportunity uh, to meet you, I want to extend a special welcome to all the guests that we have in the room with us. Very glad that you're here to worship with us this morning as we continue through 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, we're going to start it at verse 12 today. Feel free to go ahead and turn there uh, if you have Bible with you. Again, we're going to be starting at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, going through verse 12. 1 Corinthians, sorry, starting at verse 12. We're in the middle of this, uh, what I call just a little five-week section in, in our study on 1 Corinthians, where we're going to be talking a lot about the Holy Spirit. Some of y'all know him as the Holy Ghost. Anybody in the room? Some of y'all know him as the Holy Ghost, the, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God. In the Greek, the, the paraclete, the helper that Jesus promised would be sent by the Father. He even promised that it is better for us that he goes away so that the Holy Spirit would come to us and empower and help us. I want to tell a story to get us into our topic today. It was about, I believe, four or five years ago, one of the families in our family of churches actually attended downtown church. Uh, they got just horrible news that, I mean, as a parent, you would just dread, dread to hear to no end. They found out that uh, their daughter had cancer. And obviously they were, they were devastated. As a, as a family of churches, we wanted to try to figure out what we could do to be there for them. It's one of those situations where you want to help. You know you can't do anything to take the pain away, to, to take away the hurt, but you at least want to let them know that they're not alone. You at least want to let them know that you're there with them. And so, oh man. So uh, we had a service, uh, a midweek service, I think, that was planned, some special event that was planned. And in the middle of that service, uh, some of the leaders in, in the family of churches, uh, they, they found out that she was going to have to go through chemo, was have to, her hair was going to fall out. She's a, a young girl. We can only imagine how difficult that would be. And so we had actually four of our staff members say they're going to get on stage and shave their heads to stand in solidarity with the young girl who was going to lose her hair because of the, the chemo treatments that she was going to have to endure. Paul talks today in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about the topic of unity in Christ, or I should say oneness in Christ. Oneness in Christ. That we are not only individuals, but we are members of, of one body, interdependent upon one another. It is a beautiful thing when Christians display unity and oneness together. It's absolutely beautiful. It's what we're called to. We'll, we'll see what Paul has to say about it in, in chapter 12. We're going to start in We'll start in, in verse 12, but before we do that, I want to make sure we see what Jesus has to say about oneness in Christ. Because Jesus is going to show us that not only is oneness in Christ beautiful, but it's also necessary. It is essential. We'll read from John chapter 17. I'll start in verse 20. Jesus, this is Jesus' prayer to the Father the night he's going to be taken away and crucified. He's praying for his disciples and all who will come to faith through their ministry. That includes us. Verse 20 reads, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
Jesus prays for, the, for his followers throughout all generations that we will be one, that we will have the same type of oneness that he has with the Father, and that it will be so strong, it will be so supernatural that the outside world will look, look in and say that this Jesus must be exactly who he says he is because of the level of oneness that I see among his people. That, that the world will look in and say, Jesus must actually have been sent from God. They must have actually received love from God for them to be able to walk in oneness in this way. Christian oneness isn't just something to make us feel good or make us feel like we belong, even though those things are very good and beneficial and oftentimes important. But Christian oneness is something that God uses to further and build his kingdom. He uses it to reveal who he is to the world. Paul has a good bit to say about it in the 20 verses in 1 Corinthians 12 that we'll get into today. I want to focus on two main points about Christian oneness or oneness in Christ from this passage. Let's get it started in verse 12. We'll read 12 through 14. Notice how many times he uses the word one in this passage. But just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of his body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Six times in three verses, he uses the word one. He's pushing the Corinthian church towards oneness. I don't know if you've paid attention to this specific aspect of 1 Corinthians so far, if you've been with us the whole time. He keeps bringing up this, this idea, this concept of unity, potentially in every chapter so far. We're in chapter 12. I wanted to pause and just ask the question, have we sat reflectively and just considered, are we walking in oneness with our brothers and sisters? Have we just sat 11 chapters so far, and he is on, from chapter 1, Probably the first, I think, six or seven verses, he brings up this idea of unity in the church. We're in chapter 12, and he's still talking about unity within the church. I can't help but think we need to pause and ask ourselves, are we walking in division with, with, with anyone in the body, and we just keep hearing it over and over and over again and refusing to take any steps towards unity with them? Have we become closed off to the Spirit of God working in and through the proclaimed Word of God in our lives. We started this series in August. We took a few weeks off to do our Serve the City series and our Give series around Christmas time. So I was reflecting on this. I was just asking, have we, has, has this sunk in? Has this even hit us? The, the repetition with which he brings up this topic. He's saying that they should not, and they should not do anything that will prevent unity and oneness in the body. Here are two points about oneness in Christ. The first one is oneness in Christ means we focus more on the body as a whole than on the individual parts. We focus, focus more on the body as a whole than the individual parts. In the next few verses, Paul is going to expose some, some erroneous uh, thought processes or things that we may think in our minds that lead us to not actually walk in oneness together. Verse 15. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Some might say, well, I don't have the same spiritual gift as that person, so I might as well not even be a part of the body. I don't have what they have. I would love to have that gift, but now I feel maybe like a second-ranked part of the body. I feel like they're varsity. I'm probably just JV because I can't do what I see them 
doing. Paul says not having the gift or role that we want doesn't mean we're not a part of the body. No matter your gift, no matter your role, you are a a needed part of the body. Don't be so focused on your gift or your role that you wish you didn't have, that you wish you had someone else's gift or wish you didn't have your own gift. Notice in those two verses how the person who isn't seeing the whole thing correctly is focusing on themselves and not on the body as a whole. Well, I'm just this part and, and, and they're that part. I wish I was that. Or I'm just this. If only I could be that. They're only, they're, this, this is such an individualistic way of thinking. They're not considering the bigger picture. What is God doing in and through his church? How might God be using the different parts for his purposes? It's no, man, I'm just looking at myself and I don't really like the one that I have. I don't really like what my gifting is. Notice how this, this, this discontentment is rooted in, in focusing only on self and not on the bigger picture of the whole body. Oh, I'm not this. Oh, I'm not that. As Paul goes on in verses 17 through 19, he poses some rhetorical questions to point out how foolish it is for us to think this way. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? Where would be, excuse me, the sense of smell? He's asking, would the body work if all the body parts were an eye? Would the, would the body work if all the body parts were an ear? I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, of course not. The, to bring this up is ridiculous. And Paul's point is, it's ridiculous for you to covet someone else's gifting and not cherish your own and not value the one he's given you. He uses ridiculous rhetorical questions. He's saying, how would this work if everything was the eye? Well, of course, that'd be horrible. That doesn't make any sense. That's ridiculous. He said, my point exactly. My point exactly. When you see someone else's gift that God has given them, and you want to be the same thing that they are, do the same thing that they do, it's foolishness. It doesn't make any sense when you look at it objectively, when we take the time to stop looking only at ourselves individually and think about the body as a whole, we understand this doesn't make sense. So if, you, if we aren't content with the gifts that God has given us, the real issue is that we think our plan is better than God. So let me read verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. He arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. The word arrange means to put into proper order. It means to align something the way that you have designed and intended for it to go. So then the issue, as I said a minute ago, is it's not just simply that we would love to see ourselves being used in this way. It's that we doubt his plan. It's that we think, his, we think our plans are actually better than his plans. Just, 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 just zoom out with me for a little bit, right? So God creates everything good, everything right. Mankind sins, messes everything up. Now you have this whole domain of sin, this kingdom of darkness that's in the world. And from the very beginning, God promised he's going to send a descendant of Eve that's going to defeat the the, the serpent that caused Adam and Eve to sin. From the very beginning and from Genesis chapter 3 on, he's working out this plan. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to make everything better. I'm going to fix everything that you messed up. God has put together trillions of details to get you where you are right now. To get the body of Christ to where it is right now, trillions upon trillions of details have got us here. And we say, God, you gave me the wrong gift. God, you gave me the wrong gift. I should have that gift over there. 
Some of y'all heard me say, saying this before. You playing checkers with your life and God playing chess. Come on now. God playing chess. God, God is a trillion moves down the board already. And we're discontent because we want to be like that person. And we're discontent because we want God to use us the way he's using them. He said he did, he did this according, sorry, he arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. He has a plan. He is up to something here. He's been working to redeem mankind. He had a plan to do it before we ever turned away from him, before we ever sinned. He's been at work to redeem his lost creation ever since then. And we think he's given the gifts out to the wrong people. And we think he made a mistake when he gave us this gift and gave that person that gift. We arrive at foolish conclusions when we hyper-focus on our own individual roles and not on the body as a whole. We arrive at foolish conclusions. Paul continues with this mentality, verses 19 and verse 20. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. You see what he's doing? He's saying, hey, look at the whole body. Look at the body. Don't just look at yourself. Think about the body as a whole. Think about how this would affect the body of Christ holistically. I know all this sounds like common sense. But I think we don't understand this as we should. If you remember last week, if you were here with us, if not, uh, please feel free to, uh, to check out the podcast that we have. Last week I talked about how that kingdom of darkness that came in when Adam and Eve sinned. Jesus told his disciples that he's going to build his church and that the very gates of hell, referring to the kingdom of darkness, will not be able to stand against it. That the church is not primarily playing defense against the enemy and all of his attacks, but the church is playing offense and is going to take the gate and thus win and walk in victory over the kingdom of darkness. I believe, I believe he's referring to personal holiness that we live in and also as we share his good news and his kingdom grows. I also said, not only do we have a mission, but we have opposition. That there's clearly an enemy. That it sounds really good that we're to go on the offensive and God's going to use us to grow his kingdom. But some of us as believers, we're just trying to make it through the day. I'm just trying to get through work on Monday without cussing out one of my coworkers. That's, that's my goal for the day. I'm just trying to get through and still be a Christian by the end of the day. <laughs> and our enemy, he's looking to distract us, to get us to believe things that aren't true about God and ourselves. He wants, us to he wants to discourage us with the difficulties of life so that we don't continue on in the mission that our God has given us. Many of us are weary in this room right now. Many of us are weary because of the difficulties of our life, because of the destruction that sin has caused in our lives, in our world, we're trying to hang on and survive. And God understood the difficulty, so he sent the helper. So he sent the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost for my King James Christians in the place. So he sent his spirit to come live in us and empower us for the mission. And empower us to live as God has called us to live. And he has gifted us and called us to use those giftings for the edification and the building up of the church. That the church might move forward in what God has called the church to do and who God has called the church to be. Now the Holy Spirit, he comes in. He now lives in the true followers of Jesus. Last week we called the gifts. Uh, we saw how in the first, I think, 11 chapters he referred to the gifts as this manifestation of the Spirit. That it's a, it's a revealing of the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit who is invisible reveals himself through the gifts that he has given 
his people. He's divided them out according to his plan. In light of the mission, in light of the opposition, he's given us gifts to edify the church. And the church needs to be edified. The church needs to be built up. Right? This is not a side issue. This is not on the periphery somewhere. The church has a mission and the church is suffering attack from the enemy. We need to be edified and built up. And there are so many people, so many Christians today who believe that I can walk in the type of spiritual maturity that God has called me to on my own, disconnected from the local church. We believe that we can actually fully be the Christian that God has created us to be in isolation from the local church. He didn't say, I'm going to build up this believer, and, it's, and the gates of hell are not going to be able to, to, to prevail against this believer right here, against this Christian right here. He said the gates of hell will not prevail against the what? The church, the group, the body of Christ. Together we walk forward in the strength and power by the Holy Spirit. And he intends to use the gifts of the Spirit to build up and edify the church that we might walk in the victory that he has already given to us. You can't do that alone. If you're content to walk in isolation from other Christians and think, well, it's just me and Jesus and we good, you're believing a lie of the enemy that allows his kingdom to continue to progress the way that he desires it to. You've been suckered in. You took the bait. Maybe walking in community was difficult. Maybe you got hurt by somebody in the church. Maybe there, are many, there, maybe there are many different reasons, and now it's allowed you to think to yourself, oh, well, it's actually okay for me to do this. Actually, it's probably better if I'm to myself anyway, because then I, you know, I ain't got to worry about all the hypocrites in the church, and I can just go do what God's called me to do. I'm going to connect with him, and we're going to be good. And you have believed a lie of the enemy, because he knows that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So you have these manifestations of the Holy Spirit inside of you. Well, the Holy Spirit wants to use those giftings to reveal himself. But because we're so content being isolated away from the church, the church is not edified as it is called to be. And the church does not live as it is called, as she is called, excuse me, to live. In the culture of the Corinthians, they were used to worshiping all these different, these different gods, and they were trying to earn these different gifts from those gods. So they would worship the god of romance, for God to, to bless their, 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 their romance, so they were romantic life. They worshiped the god of money, the god of success, maybe the god of travel for safe travels. And their belief was, if I worship this god, then I'll get these gifts, and it will benefit me. And Paul is flipping it on him, and he's saying, no, these gifts that God gives you that you don't even have to earn are not for you. They're not for you. These are different gifts than what you're used to trying to receive from those false gods that they were worshiping. They are for others. I fear we've become so focused on self that we don't even consider the fact that the Holy Spirit is trying to manifest himself through us for the common good of the church. We're more focused on how we feel, how we look, how our day is going, what this person said to us or didn't say, how the kids are acting, that we don't even stop to ask God, is there a way you're planning on using the gift that you strategically put in me today? Is there a way that you're desiring to use this gift for the common good, for the edification of the body of Christ today? Lead me, guide me. How might you want to use this gift that you have assigned to me, that you have arranged to put in me according to your divine plan that you've been working out since the beginning of history? So many of us, we think about church in terms of what it can do for us. Am I being fed? Are people looking out for me? Are people checking in on me? Are people encouraging me? Me, me, me. 
Those aren't bad questions. Am I getting fed? That's an important question that we should be asking, but it shows tremendous immaturity if we're not also asking the question, how might God use me to feed somebody else? As you grow into maturity, even even in this natural life, you start off needing people to feed you. You start off, if somebody doesn't feed you, you don't eat. But as you grow and mature, first you learn to eat on your own, and you learn to feed yourself. And then after that, you learn to feed others and bless others. I say it all the time. There's only one person that lives in my house that don't have responsibilities to help other people. She's 16 months old. She's adorable. Absolutely adorable. She cries when she's hungry. It's cute right now. Five years later, it's not going to be cute anymore. Not going to be cute anymore. You need to be feeding yourself. And and at some point, you're going to be taking on chores to help other people. This is a sign of maturity that we no longer focus solely on the individual, but on the group and on the body as a whole. This is what maturity looks like. So for the Christian who believes the lie that I can just stay to myself, I don't have to worry about contributing to anyone else. It's walking and living in immaturity in the faith. I think for some of us, it's, it's a combination of insecurity in our own self and how God might use us. And also just a failure to even think about and comprehend the fact that God would want to use our giftings in us. For some of us in the room. I think I said this last week, you would participate a lot more in your life group if you expected God to use your gifts to bless his body. You would participate a lot more. It would be a little bit easier for you to get out the door and get around the fellowship of believers. Maybe it's life groups, maybe it's here at our gatherings here today. If you had an expectation that God is going to use me, he's put something in me that he intends to use to build up his body. I said this many times, I had a lot of people come up to me and say, hey, this whole life group thing isn't working for me. I don't really like it. I don't feel like I'm receiving anything from it. Right, which I understand. I think if, if people feel that way, we want to have that conversation. It's not a bad conversation to have. My point is never, not once in those conversations has a person brought up how they might be being used in the lives of others in their life group. Not once in those conversations. And that's generally the first place I go. Thank you. Thank you. Some of it is that you, you don't understand what God has given you. You don't, you don't understand. You don't comprehend. You have such, so many lies that you've, you've believed, so, so much doubt in God and what he would do in and through you that you can't even fathom that God has you there for a purpose to, to, to build up everyone else in the group. And we need this because we have people in our church who are struggling right now just to hang on to faith in the Lord. Struggling just to, just to tomorrow, but still consider themselves in the faith. We have people in our church who are struggling. and We have others in our church who have gifts that God intends to use to build those people up that are not using them. This is serious. This is not, we don't just have gifts just so that we can say, feel good about ourselves like, and say that we are contributing. But no, there, there is a real mission and there is real opposition I want to talk about what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. This is the last known letter we have from Paul. He's writing to his closest disciple, Timothy. He's sharing his heart with him. He writes, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, it's most likely that when someone deserts Paul, they're actually walking away from the faith because in Gentile territory, Paul was the leader of the church as a whole. 
Right? He was the apostle that went to the Gentiles more than anyone else. So in Thessalonica, to desert Paul most likely means you are turned away from the faith. And he says, this man who is likely a fellow servant alongside Paul has fallen in love with the world and has left him. The person on the road next to you, the enemy wants them to fall away from the world and walk away from God. Fall in love with the world and walk away from God. But he's giving you a gift. But he's giving you a manifestation of himself in you to edify the body of believers. He cares about his church. He died for his church. He rose again and said he's coming back for his church. Because he's going to make sure his church gets to go be with him. And he calls us to join him in the work of edifying his church in the meantime. My brothers and sisters, how selfish, how selfish are we if we won't sacrifice the time, the energy, the whatever for the church that he came and died for and saved and used the gift that he has freely given to us? How selfish. Christ gave his life for the church. And oftentimes we don't participate with the church because our favorite TV show is on. Think about that. Think about that. He gave his life for the church. Died for, his body was ripped apart for the church. His blood was shed. He died for the church. Oh, no, I don't really feel like doing that. What's such what's going on? It's raining outside. It's too hot. It's too cold. The weather's too nice. Now I'm going to go and do something at the park instead of go and participate with the church. It's too cold. I don't go. It's too hot. I don't go. The weather's too nice. I don't go. Because he died for the church. He gave his life for the church. We have a mission. We have a war we're fighting in. We have brothers and sisters struggling. You have a gift that God has given you to edify them. And we're not building each other up in oneness as we should. Because oftentimes we're thinking more about the individual than the group. We're thinking more about ourselves than we're thinking about others. We have a lack of expectation for the Holy Spirit to work in us as he has promised to do. Now, I think for some of us, we might be thinking, I know I'm a part of the body. I know that God gave me this gift for a reason. But how much am I going to use the gift of administration for, right? It's not like I got the gift of preaching. It's not like I got the gift of, of prophecy or anything like that. I got the gift of, of, of service. I got the gift of helping. I got the gift of administration. I got the gift of, of mercy. It doesn't seem like these gifts are as powerful or as needed, some might say. Or insert into that list whatever gift that you have that you may feel like, it's not as important. Verse 21, same chapter. Paul says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need for you, nor, again, the head to the feet, I have no need for you. Look closely at verse 22. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are what? Indispensable. Indispensable. The word indispensable means not subject to being set aside or neglected absolutely necessary or essential. The word here, the fact that he has this word here kind of assumes that there are some gifts that are indispensable and some that you might be able to find someone else to do. Let me try to explain what I mean by that. If I put on Facebook right now, I need somebody to come uh, preach for me for three weeks at such, such, such time, who's available? My Facebook will blow up. Blow up. 
If I said we need three weeks, we need people to get here at 7 o'clock in the morning to set up for because we got pipe and drapes and we got sound equipment and everything needs to be set up. Crickets. Crickets. If y'all don't mind, I'm going to call my man Matt Harvey. I know I called him out last week. I'm going to call him out again this week if y'all don't mind. Gift of service like none other, right? Got that Mark Shingler anointing is what I like to call it. Gift of service like none other, 7 o'clock every Sunday. That's indispensable. Ain't nobody signing up for that like that. Ain't nobody excited looking for an opportunity to come early before everyone else and set everything up so that everyone else can be blessed and edified. That is indispensable. Got to have it. Got to have it. Got to have it. I can find, people, I can find a bunch of people who want to come preach. And listen, I've done both. I've set up speakers in the one and I preach. Preaching is harder. It's, hard, it's more difficult, but it's the one that we can get people to sign up for like it's nothing. Setting up the speakers is actually easier. It's actually easier. If you mess up, we got somebody else who knows how to do it. We can fix it. But the one that people will sign up for, Paul says, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, absolutely necessary, essential, not subject to be set aside or neglected. I got another one for you. Can I brag on the sister Jasmine Davis in here for a minute? We was having, back when we was on Schoolhouse Road, we was having this event. We was getting rid of some stuff because we were trying to change kind of the format and the layout of one of our buildings to make it more uh, useful for ministry. So we were getting rid of some stuff. Um, and we just, we're just putting it out there by the street uh, so that, you know, the garbage, uh, the city can come by and pick it up and everything. Um, and Jasmine Davis approached me with the holy fire in the eye. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. I don't know if you've ever seen the holy fire in the eye of someone. And it was a compassionate, merciful, we could have blessed so many people with this. And it was raining at the time. It was like drizzling on that day, right? So the stuff was getting ruined. She was like, we could have blessed so many people in this neighborhood with this stuff. Man, I was like convicted, blown away. I don't think I will ever remember that. Gift of mercy, need that. Need that. Can't go without it. The way I think about ministry now is different as a result of that conversation Gift of mercy, indispensable. Got to have it. Can't replace it. Indispensable. And everything she said was right. She came and apologized later. I was like, you didn't do anything wrong. I was the one that was in the wrong. And I don't think I ever forget it. Hear me on this, fam. No matter what your gift is, we are less without you. We are less without you. If you're a member in this church or if God has called you to be a member of this church and you're dragging your feet, we are less without you. We will not be who God has called us to be, who he has created us to be without you. Not just with you showing up, but with you participating. Not just with you being in the area or being in the building or being in a group or being on the roster sheet, but with you participating, using the gifts that you have. We are less without you and the gifts that God has given you. If you're not using your spiritual gifts to edify our church body, we can't be who we're made to be. We can't accomplish what we're made to accomplish. Move on, verse 23. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Who do you encourage more? The person with the, up, with the type of gift that gets you a microphone or the type of gift 
that has you in the background? Who do you encourage more in their gifting? Who do you honor more? Who do you affirm more in their gifting? The gift of administration, gift of prophecy, gift of mercy, gift of teaching and preaching. Who do you affirm more? Paul says we give greater honor, greater honor to the unpresentable parts, as he would say, or to the weaker parts, as he said a little bit earlier. Verse 27, as he goes through this different list of gifts, maybe you think through which gifts are you more likely to encourage. Verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing. Look what he puts in right in that same list. After, after miracles and gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak, in tongue, speak with tongues, do all interpret, but eagerly desire the higher gifts. And we'll get into verse 31 in a couple weeks when we get to chapter 14. He puts helping and administrating right in the middle of gifts that we would generally call the sign gifts or the miraculous gifts. I believe he's making a point there. Many historians will say that the Corinthian church in general would elevate certain gifts like speaking in tongues over other gifts of the Spirit. And so he puts administration and just helping, just helping, the gift of just helping. I think he blew up their, all their categories that they had. He's seemingly elevating their view of those gifts that don't get to lead up front as much. First point was oneness in Christ means we focus more on the body than the body parts. Point number, two mean, point number two is oneness in Christ means we go through the highs and lows together. We go through the highs and the lows together. Verse 25 and 26. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Here's a good test for how we're doing and walking in oneness in our church. Does seeing the other members of our church hurt cause you to hurt? Do you hurt when they hurt? I'm talking about after they, they said something out of the side of their mouth to you. I'm talking about after they didn't respond to your text message. I'm talking about after they're not putting forth the amount of effort they need to into our life group type of people, right? When they hurt, do you hurt? Do their pains pain you? Here's a good test for oneness in your life group. Do you all know each other enough to know when each other are hurting? And when they hurt, does it hurt you? When they are full of joy, does it give you joy? Are we walking through this life together in oneness as one body with many parts? The reality is true, deep love unites us with people. It unites us with people. Notice in verses 25 and 26 that I just read, there's no commands. He's not commanding them. He says that there may be no division in the body, but, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. He's saying you're, you're already one. You've already been made one in Christ. He's showing us what it looks like to live it out. Let me try to make that point a little clearer. I saw a quote by Joni. I think her last name is, is Tada. I'm not 100% sure. She said, believers are never told to become one. We already are one and are expected to act like it. Believers are never told to become one. We already are one and are expected to act like it. 
So then if we're not focusing, if we're not walking in oneness, then we have a fundamental belief that we are more so individuals, members of the body, than we are a part of a collective group. The focus on the fact that we are just individuals and not considering how we play out in the, in the larger context of the group, of the local church and the church at large, leads us to not walk in the oneness and unity that we are called to walk in. I believe Paul is pointing out that if you truly understand that we are one, that we're actually members and parts of the same body, then when your brother or sister hurts, then you'll hurt. Then when your brother or sister is honored and rejoicing, then you'll rejoice with them because that's how you are tied to them and how you are connected to them. When it comes to Christian love and unity with each other, I don't believe the primary goal that we should have is to figure out how to do good things for each other, even though I believe that's very important. Hear me very clearly. I want to make a distinction. I don't believe our primary goal should be to try to figure out how to do good things for each other. I believe our primary goal should be to try to further understand that this person is a part of me, that I am now one with this person. Right? That's why I say to married people all the time now, when we, when we go to premarital counseling, like you, you see that person as a part of yourself, then obviously their hurts are your hurts. Then obviously their joys are your joys. You see them now as a part of you that you're not able to actually walk in, in a, with a distance from each other. I believe this comes clear as we think of Jesus' command to love others as you love what? Yourself. That we, are to, that we are to see each other as a part of us, that we are members of the same body, interdependent upon one another. You may have heard somebody say it like this. Oh, them, oh, that's my heart right there, talking about somebody that they love. Maybe it's a romantic relationship, maybe it's a child. Oh, that's my heart right there. What are they saying? That this person, to some degree, in some way, it's like they're a part of me now. If they hurt, my heart hurts. This person has become a, a part of me. This is how united we are. And Paul, we, we are called to oneness, to Christian oneness. This is the posture that we should have. As Christians, we recognize that the oneness we have with each other stands on the foundation of the oneness and unity that we have with Christ. In a few minutes, we're going to partake in communion together. We're going to go to the bread, which represents the, the body of Christ. You're going to notice, as always, that the bread has been broken. So what we understand to be true as Christians is that as his physical body was broken and torn apart, his spiritual body was being put together. That as his physical body was, 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 was ripped apart, his spiritual body is now united together. We, we are now tied and knit together as one, as members of the same body. As we take communion today in remembrance of him, let's remember that his broken body brought about oneness in his spiritual body, the church. That he has made us one with himself first. And because we are one with him, because we are in him, then now all of us as his people are one together. So we don't focus primarily on ourselves. We focus on his body. And we understand that because of that, we go through the highs and the lows together because we're one. We're one. If we're one, then, you're, you're, then you should not be alone. I should not be alone. We should walk through everything together. And we remember that as we approach the communion table today. Let me pray for us, then I'll open up the table for communion. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you first for uniting us with yourself. 
Father, we deserve to be separated from you. Matter of fact, we walked away. We just, we just turned our back on you and walked away from you. And you still long for us to come back, that you might call us back in, that you might unite us with yourself, that we might be able to walk in fellowship and unity and oneness with you. That your oneness doesn't run out based on how good of a job we're doing at following you or how good a job we're doing at being your children. That your oneness is set, it's secure, it's fixed. We don't have to worry about it. We know that we're yours. Father, would you make us a a church that loves like that? That walks in unity with one another like that? That understands our, 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 our position, that we're connected to each other, that we are one with each other already. Would you teach us how to live that out? That we would consider our gifts, the gifts that you have given us, in terms of how we might serve each other because we're one. Thank you for dying that you might unite us with yourself. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.